Welcome to Understanding Buddhism in America. My name is Mike, and today I'd like to start going over the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is one of the most widely known Buddhist scriptures, and it is said that every verse written was actually a reaction by the Buddha on separate occasions from different issues that arose in his monastic community. So monks, like all of us, had issues, and these sayings in the Dhammapada are Buddha's reply to those issues. Now, if you're interested in finding out what exactly the circumstances were that the Buddha was replying to, you can find them in the Dhammapada Athakatha. Athakatha is Pali for commentary, just so you know, and I believe I saw a free version online just by googling it, so you can use that if you like. Also, there's an illustrated version of the Dhammapada at buddhanet.net slash dhammapada, if you like pictures with your stories. Before we jump in, I'd like to mention what Dhammapada actually means. Dhamma and Dharma are the same word in two different languages. Dhamma is Pali and Dharma is Sanskrit. And they mean a number of things. They mean the state of nature, as it is, the laws of nature, the teachings of Buddha, or just any phenomenon. Pada comes from the Latin prefix pedo, which means foot. Pada can also mean path, which stems from the Greek prefix pedon, which means soil or earth. So Dhammapada can be translated as the path of Buddha's teachings or the nature of the journey. Sometimes I love that Buddhism came from foreign places because the translations always leave room for interpretation, and it's a lot more forgiving that way. Some people try and choose the earliest translations or the least modified ones, and some try and choose the ones that best reflect the meaning of the passage, but really all anyone is doing is choosing what sounds best to their own ears. I figure the more perspectives we get, the more accessible the teachings become, and there's nothing wrong with that. Chapter 1 of the Dhammapada is called the Twin Verses. It's called that because, as you'll hear, it uses a certain duality to help you understand the teachings. The interesting thing is, Buddha works a bit like a sculptor. Sculptors take large rocks and chisel away everything that isn't the sculpture until the sculpture is revealed. Buddha does this with his words. He talks about what one path of chiseling will lead to, and then he talks about what the opposite path will lead to, just like an art teacher. The twins also refer to his use of here and hereafter, which can mean this life and the next, or just this moment and the next. Really, it works either way. So he talks about the present and the future to help you understand eternity, or the eternal nature of how things are. This particular version of the Dhammapada that I'll be reading from is translated from Pali by Akarya Buddharakita and is available on accesstoinsight.org. The teachings are mostly straightforward, which is pretty amazing considering how old they are. But should you have any questions or comments, you can email me at understandingbuddhisminamerica at gmail.com and I'll answer your questions at the end of next week's podcast. So here's chapter one, the twin verses. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows him like his never-departing shadow. 
He abused me. He struck me. He overpowered me. He robbed me. Those who harbor such thoughts do not still their hatred. He abused me. He struck me. He overpowered me. He robbed me. Those who do not harbor such thoughts still their hatred. Hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is a law eternal. There are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels. Just as a storm throws down a weak tree, so does Mara overpower the man who lives for the pursuit of pleasures, who is uncontrolled in his senses, immoderate in eating, indolent and dissipated. Just as a storm cannot prevail against a rocky mountain, so Mara can never overpower the man who lives meditating on the impurities, who is controlled in his senses, moderate in eating, and filled with faith and earnest effort. Whoever being depraved, devoid of self-control and truthfulness, shall don the monk's yellow robe. He surely is not worthy of the robe. But whoever is purged of depravity, well established in virtues and filled with self-control and truthfulness, he indeed is worthy of the yellow robe. Those who mistake the unessential to be essential and the essential to be unessential, dwelling in their wrong thoughts, never arrive at the essential. Those who know the essential to be essential and the unessential to be unessential, dwelling in right thoughts, do arrive at the essential. Just as rain breaks through an ill-thatched house, so passion penetrates an undeveloped mind. Just as rain does not break through a well-thatched house, so passion never penetrates a well-developed mind. The evildoer grieves here and hereafter. He grieves in both the worlds. He laments and is afflicted, recollecting his own impure deeds. The doer of good rejoices here and hereafter. He rejoices in both the worlds. He rejoices and exults, recollecting his own pure deeds. The evildoer suffers here and hereafter. He suffers in both the worlds. The thought, evil have I done, torments him. And he suffers even more when gone to realms of woe. The doer of good delights here and hereafter. He delights in both the worlds. The thought, good have I done, delights him. And he delights even more when gone to realms of bliss. Much though he recites the sacred texts, but acts not accordingly, that heedless man is like a cowherd who only counts the cows of others. He does not partake of the blessings of the holy life. Little though he recites the sacred texts, but puts the teaching into practice, forsaking lust, hatred, and delusion, with true wisdom and emancipated mind, clinging to nothing of this or any other world, he indeed partakes of the blessings of a holy life. So what the Buddha is trying to say in this first chapter is basically that what you think you become. And he does actually say that at some point. I'm pretty sure that's a quote by the Buddha and about 500 other people. I know I've seen it everywhere. But it's very true. The mind is an interesting place because whatever it dwells on, it stays with. I remember reading about a scientific study that said the more you hear something, the more you start to agree with it. 
And I thought that was really interesting. And the Buddha is saying something like that here. I mean, if you only think about death and terribleness and you dwell upon your angers and your frustrations and everything, then that's, that's your mind. That's all that's in your mind. And soon enough, you're going to believe that that should be the only thing in your mind and that you're doing everything right, even though that's what your mind looks like. But the mind doesn't work quite like that. It doesn't work where whatever you're thinking is the only thing you should be thinking. It's more like a blank canvas. And if you're only thinking negative thoughts about bad things that have happened to you, or maybe you're worried about bad things that will happen to you, I mean, you're just painting really angry pictures, you know? You just, you have paintings of like demons and devils. And you can make that painting anything you want. I mean, you're the painter, you can do whatever you want with it. So that's really what the Buddha is saying. He's saying if you dwell upon these bad things, that's going to be all that's left of you eventually, even in the next world. But if you manage to let go and you stop painting all these crazy things everywhere, then your mind is back to that blank canvas. You don't even have to erase it, you know? It just fades away. All the paint just fades away. And when you're back to that blank canvas, I mean, that's it. That's what you're looking for. That's that that everlasting satisfaction that we're all going after and we never seem to be able to find. And we can't seem to find it because we keep painting these ideas of what that's going to look like. But you can't do that. You can't really paint a blank canvas, you know? It's just a blank canvas before you paint it. So your desires are actually blocking the way. Alan Watts is somebody I talk about a lot. He's one of my favorite philosophers. He's also known in Zen Buddhism and Taoism. And he talks about how it's a bit like looking at a stained glass window of the sky, right? And maybe it's a really, really pretty stained glass window, and it's got really detailed clouds, and the sun looks beautiful, and all these things. But the only way you're going to see the real sky, the real nature of everything, is if you break that window. If you scrape off the paint until there's nothing left but the real, the truth. Because that's what we're really looking for, you know? That's what's really beautiful. That's the infinite. Next week, I'll start on chapter two. Uh, But for now, if you have any questions or comments at all, I'm going to be doing a question and answer podcast pretty shortly. So I've been getting a lot of really good questions in my email. Uh, I urge you, please ask me some questions. I would love to answer them on the air. If you have any comments, that's great. I'd love to read them on the air or maybe some kind of testimonial about what Buddhism has done for your life. Uh, That would be amazing. That would be wonderful. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.